Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, March 10th. I'm Nathaniel Weinzapfel. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management has announced a new plan that will reduce the negative effects of a waste oil recycling plant on the south side of Indianapolis. The plant, run by Metalworking Lubricants Co., had previously been cited as a creator of air pollution and being the source behind a foul-smelling odor that lingers over the nearby residential areas. Neighbors reported natural gas smells and found that the air quality was often so poor that people couldn't spend time outside. Metalworking lubricants had previously violated air pollution laws and five operating tanks at the facility are reported to be directly pumping pollution into the air. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management plans to scrub the operating tanks in an effort to improve odor and reduce pollution. Reports of toxic algae have increased over the last few years and have caused severe harm to Midwestern pets and their families. For example, a couple visiting Lake Centralia in Illinois last summer with their pet Golden Retriever were shocked when, after drinking from the lake, their dog, Zeus, began vomiting and having seizures. Sadly, Zeus passed away while being driven to emergency veterinarian care. The couple also suffered from negative effects, including vomiting, severe liver damage, and gastrointestinal issues. Stories like Zeus's have become more common as fertilizer runoff into lakes increases and temperatures become warmer due to climate change. The lake they were visiting was found to have high levels of the toxin called microcystin at around 4,000 parts per billion. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's health guideline is around 8 parts per billion. Midwestern states have historically not tested recreational water bodies often enough due to a lack of funding. However, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has pledged to send federal grants to state agencies that should allow them to test water bodies more. Earlier this week, the United Nations Environmental Program announced a new resolution signed by over 170 nations and hopes to begin the process of stopping the world's plastic pollution. The resolution, titled End Plastic Pollution Towards an International Legally Binding Instrument, hopes to be the first step towards an enforceable plan to end plastic waste. This is a result of the acknowledgement of the United Nations 
that plastic provides a lot of benefits to modern society, and thus manufacturers are highly unlikely to independently stop producing plastic anytime soon. The United Nations views this resolution as necessary to begin the transition away from single-use plastics and reduce microplastic pollution. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Wines Apple. In today's feature report, IER reporter Enrique Sands will discuss various environmental legislation that is pending in the Indiana General Assembly. That's coming up later in the program. Citizens and environmental groups are urging Hoosiers to try to stop HB 1209, a carbon capture and sequestration bill introduced in the 2022 Indiana General Assembly that threatens property values, health, water supplies, and the environment. HB 1209 forces Indiana taxpayers to take on the ownership, risk, and liability for the underground storage of toxic carbon dioxide after storage wells have been closed and after corporations that have owned them have walked away with their profits. The potential risks related to the underground storage of high-pressured carbon dioxide waste are threefold. One, carbon dioxide can leak into our aquifers, poisoning our water. Two, carbon dioxide can migrate to the surface, causing asphyxiation because the substance is heavier than oxygen and displaces it. Three, long-term underground storage of carbon dioxide can increase seismic activity, thereby increasing the danger of earthquakes. HB 1209 not only puts Hoosier taxpayers on the hook for long-term liability for accidents, but also opens the entire state of Indiana to the development of carbon dioxide pipelines and storage wells. NPR reports that Indiana lawmakers amended a bill to remove incentives for adopting state guidelines on where wind and solar farms can be located. Money from renewable energy projects would have boosted revenues for rural counties and townships. The original bill, SB 411, would have given counties $1 for every megawatt hour of energy generated by a wind or solar farm every year for a decade. But Representative Ed Soliday, representative of Valparaiso, said it wasn't clear in the bill where that money would come from and that it should probably be part of the state budget. Still, he said, it's important for communities to have state guidance on siting wind and solar farms. Quote, Almost every company that's moving to Indiana or wants to move to Indiana wants renewable energy. You can believe in global warming or you cannot believe in global warming. There is a market for renewable energy, end quote, Saladay said. Right now, Indiana has a patchwork of local ordinances that make it difficult for something like a wind farm, which can span multiple counties, to be built. The original bill aimed to give renewable energy companies clarity on which areas are open to wind and solar. What this latest legislative move fails to address is the strong opposition that has developed over all wind and solar projects. Often the opposition is expressed as, I'd rather watch corn growing. 
Given that Indiana is in the bottom third of states with renewables, the current trajectory will not remove our dependency on fossil fuels for decades. Another corn-growing state, Iowa, currently relies on renewables for 58% of its power and will be 100% renewables within a decade. Indiana cyclists are pushing for new protections for people who share the roads with cars. A bill currently before Indiana General Assembly would classify pedestrians, cyclists, and road workers as vulnerable road users and ensure that drivers who injure or kill anyone in that category face legal repercussions. According to the Indiana Public Policy Institute, from 2015 to 2019, almost 4,300 Indiana cyclists and over 8,800 pedestrians were involved in vehicle collisions. Summer Cowan with Bicycle Indiana says drivers in those cases often aren't penalized properly. According to the bill, injuring a vulnerable road user would carry a maximum one-year jail sentence and up to a $5,000 fine, and killing someone in that category would entail a maximum of two and a half years in prison and a fine of up to $10,000. According to the Public Policy Institute, pedestrian and cyclist traffic deaths were on the decline from 2018 to 2019. But Cowan says while there is no injury data available for 2020 or 2022, she estimates that the numbers haven't continued improving, noting that there was a nationwide increase in deadly driving and fatal car accidents during the pandemic. The Indiana Environmental Reporter has discovered that the Northern Indiana Public Service Company will be responsible for cleaning up soil contamination at individual residences within the Town of Pines Groundwater Plume Superfund site in Porter County, Indiana, the Environmental Protection Agency announced last week. The soil is contaminated by coal ash, the byproduct of burning coal for electricity. For decades, NIPSCO dumped more than a million tons of coal ash in a landfill on top of the Town of Pines aquifer, and it also offered coal ash to the Town of Pines to be used in landscaping homes and building roads, saying it wasn't harmful to residents. The coal ash leached into the groundwater, causing the town's well water to be polluted. NIPSCO paid for homes within the remedial investigation area to be hooked up to the Michigan City Municipal Water, but other homes remained on well water. It is estimated it will cost $11.8 million to resolve the Superfund liability. In just three years, the state of Indiana could be burning a lot less coal. The Indy Star reports that AES, the global parent company of AES Indiana, formerly known as Indianapolis Power and Light, announced plans to leave coal behind by 2025. This announcement is accelerating AES's schedule and would make the company one of the first to go coal-free. This could be big news for Indiana, where the utility currently burns about 1 gigawatt, or 1,000 megawatts of coal power at its Petersburg plant, which sits about 50 miles north of Evansville. AES Indiana serves more than 512,000 customers in the state, primarily in central Indiana and Indianapolis. That said, AES Indiana is not yet committing to a full retirement of Petersburg, whose remaining units are currently slated to run through 2040, thus muddying the waters of its parent company's announcement. Some of the people most vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis are people whom few people think or care about, 
people incarcerated in counties, jails, prisons, and detention centers. A comprehensive analysis in The Intercept reveals that the climate crisis disproportionately harms incarcerated people. That is especially the case for California, Texas, and Florida, which have the largest incarcerated populations in the nation and face some of the most frequent and extreme impacts of the climate crisis, including floods, wildfires, and heat waves. Most incarcerated people live in spaces that are not air-conditioned. One segregation cell in a Texas state prison regularly has a heat index of as high as 127 degrees Fahrenheit. In California last year, the Dixie Fire cut off the electricity in a state prison in Susanville, leaving the prisoners locked in their dark and smoky cells frightened of what might happen if the fire reached the prison. Last summer, Tropical Storm Elsa flooded a Florida state prison, trapping the inmates in their cells as water filled with human waste, snakes, and insects reached their knees before they were evacuated. Flood risk data predicted the flooding there and at many other carceral institutions throughout the U.S. For the first time in four years, scientists have seen an uptick in the number of monarch butterflies migrating from the United States to Mexico. As of mid-December, the butterflies covered 1.13 hectares of forest, up from an all-time low of 0.67 hectares last year. But despite a nearly 70% increase in forest coverage, the established proxy for butterfly numbers, the 2014 to 2015 number is still the second lowest since recording began in the winter of 1993 to 1994. The increase is, quote, good news, but the numbers still remain very low, end quote, said Omar Vidal, Director General of the World Wildlife Fund Mexico, in a press conference here today. WWF Mexico administers the winter colony count, surveying the sites where monarchs are known to gather to wait out the winter before returning to the United States to breed. This year's population increase was probably largely due to good monarch breeding weather last summer in the upper Midwest, says Karen Oberhauser, a conservation biologist at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. The region saw relatively mild temperatures and regular rain to nourish milkweed on which monarchs lay their eggs. That allowed more caterpillars to survive to adulthood and boosted the number of butterflies attempting the journey to Mexico, Vidal explained. And now for our feature. IER reporter Enrique Sands will discuss environmental legislation that is pending in the Indiana General Assembly. Every year, it seems advocates for health, the environment, and consumer issues hold their breath when the Indiana General Assembly meets. They probably think to themselves, how bad is this session going to be? In past years, Hoosier lawmakers have pushed forward business-friendly legislation with wide-ranging effects on health and the environment. In the past two years, though, the Indiana General Assembly has shown it is not reluctant to reach further into Hoosier life to make life easier for businesses. Let's take a look at some of the legislation being considered this year. One bill that has passed the House and is now being considered by the Senate would make it not legal for any state agency to craft any rule that is, quote, more stringent than any rule or fine imposed by the federal government. The bill does not define what constitutes more stringent or who would make that determination, potentially miring the legislation in lawsuits. State agencies would also be required to get approval for emergency rules from the state attorney general, 
who would then be able to deny that emergency rule. If House Bill 1100 becomes law, it could leave the state of Indiana dependent on the federal government for action on state-specific concerns like Hoosier Health or the environment. The state would have to hope the federal government addresses issues like air pollution or water quality. Here's what Representative Steve Bartels, who introduced the bill, said about its purpose. Agencies do not represent their districts. They don't represent the state. They're an agency that works for somebody. So when we talk about the checks and balances, we can make more stringent rules, laws, but agencies should not have that power. And we can do it quicker. We can do it in less than a year. Every year we can change the law. The state does work slowly to change, but for environmental issues at least, that's on purpose. Indiana lawmakers in 2017 passed a bill, House Enrolled Act 1082, that forces the Indiana Department of Environmental Management to let the legislature know when it intends to enact rules that are more stringent than those of the federal government and delay implementation until after the end of the next legislative session, giving lawmakers time to kill that rule. HB 1100 would turn the slow crawl of regulation into a full stop. This is Tim Maloney, Senior Policy Director for the Hoosier Environmental Council. It would uh, greatly limit our state agency's ability to adopt timely and appropriate state standards to protect public health and the environment. The federal environmental laws that are delegated to the states for implementation, like the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, uh, build in a great deal of discretion for states in implementing these laws. And so that so that state regulators can craft rules that are tailored to Indiana conditions and circumstances. Maloney said the state of Indiana already has nearly a dozen checks and balances that restrict the approval of rules and regulations if they are adopted without proper authority. Bartels said HB 1100 could allow the state government to react faster to urgent needs. But he and other legislators have shown a reluctance to support legislation that does not directly support business interests or partisan cultural issues, leaving the state of Indiana to rely mainly on state agencies for action on health and the environment. In the 2021 session of the Indiana General Assembly, lawmakers let die bills standardizing renewable energy siting, establishing radon testing in schools, establishing a blood testing program for veterans or service members potentially exposed to PFAS chemicals, and more. Lawmakers did pass a bill supported by land developers that gutted state protections of wetlands and a bill supported by the oil and gas industry that prevents local governments from banning the use of fossil fuels in their jurisdiction. There's another factor that could deepen the impact of HB 1100 if it does become law. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided to hear a case that could drastically limit the reach of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and other federal agencies. That case is the state of West Virginia versus the EPA. The case was brought by the Republican attorneys general of more than a dozen fossil fuel states. The states want the court to determine whether, beyond checks on cost, non-air impacts, and energy requirements, there are limits to the EPA's power to reshape the nation's electric grid. The majority conservative court is expected to curtail the EPA's reach by at least some amount, leaving more decisions on health and the environment to states. What that will mean for states that depend on the EPA and other federal agencies to determine how low the bar of regulation can be remains to be seen. The Indiana General Assembly is also backing business-friendly bills that would help the environment. The Indiana Senate approved a bill that would reward communities that choose to adopt certain renewable energy siting standards with financial incentives. 
Senate Bill 411, introduced by Senators Mark Mesmer, Eric Cook, and Lonnie Randolph, would establish the Commercial Solar and Wind Energy Ready Communities Development Center within the Indiana Economic Development Commission. The center would work to certify communities that volunteer to participate as commercial solar energy ready or commercial wind energy ready if they meet certain renewable-friendly siting standards established in the bill. The IEDC would then give those communities $1 for every megawatt hour generated by the wind or solar project in their area. The bill does not identify how the state would pay for the incentive, which the communities would receive in addition to taxes collected from the projects and other money negotiated with the renewable energy companies. Mesmer said that would be decided in the House. It is completely voluntary. The bill sets up siting standards that they need to adopt to be approved as renewable ready. It is only for new projects. If a county has strict ordinances that prohibit renewable development in their county now, they're free to keep those in place. The bill is supported by renewable energy companies, the Association of Indiana Counties, Association of Indiana County Commissioners, and other organizations. The bill is a second attempt to standardize renewable siting in order to prevent renewable energy companies from abandoning the state after a spate of restrictive ordinances were enacted in dozens of Indiana counties. They essentially banned wind and solar installations there. Last year, Representative Ed Soliday introduced House Bill 1381, which sought to override local ordinances by establishing statewide renewable siting standards. The bill was amended to grandfather in older local ordinances and passed the House. The bill faced defeat in the Senate and was withdrawn by Senator Mark Mesmer. Some renewable companies attributed the bill's defeat to both real and manufactured opposition to wind and solar projects. At the 2021 American Clean Power Siting and Environmental Compliance Virtual Summit, Apex Clean Energy Vice President for Public Affairs Davy Wilson said another factor for its defeat was a lack of support from environmental groups. One of the opponents uh, to that bill, unfortunately, was the environmental community, who was upset that, um, that that might limit their ability to get local governments to require pollinator habitat um, to be associated with solar projects. And it was a really unfortunate I think example of how we can sort of work across purposes with each other, uh, that bill would have probably facilitated the development of a fair amount of renewable energy in the state um, and instead was was killed in part because a few Democrats came off uh, support due to the environmental uh, pushback. Concerns about ground cover management continue. The Hoosier Environmental Council, one of the most prominent environmental advocacy organizations in the state, said it was neutral on the bill in its current state. The organization said it would shift its support to an enthusiastic yes if a single line was removed from the bill that allowed landowners to veto ground cover requirements, like the use of pollinator seed mixes, a vegetation plan, or the use of economically feasible and region-appropriate non-invasive species. The HEC said the provision could allow landowners to veto those requirements. Senator Shelley Yoder, who voted in favor of the bill, said the language of the bill would affect tens of thousands of acres of land by the end of the decade. And how we choose to manage the land under these solar farms will have a major impact on stormwater runoff, flooding, soil and water conservation, and our population of pollinators who are so vital to Indiana's fruit and vegetable growers. So should Senate Bill 411, which I do support, Advance to the House, I want to work with you, Senator Messmer, and the House at making sure we are addressing the ground cover language in Senate Bill 411 to make sure it's in the right place. The bill now heads to the Indiana House of Representatives for consideration. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. 
and I'm Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. If you have been cooped up all winter and want to get out, you can bring your dog and participate in a winter hike series dog hike at Brown County State Park on Saturday, March 12th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Ogle Lake parking area to hike around the lake on Trail 7. Most of the trail is moderate. Make sure your dog is on at least a six-foot leash while in the park. For all you coffee drinkers out there, plan a trip to Spring Mill State Park for a Coffee with Cardinals program on Saturday, March 12th from 10 a.m. to noon. Join Anthony in the lower lobby of the Spring Mill Inn to see and learn what comes and goes from the backyard birding habitat. Enjoy coffee and cookies. Take a winter exploration hike at Lucas Ridge on Monroe Lake on Tuesday, March 15th from 10 a.m. to noon. These winter exploration hikes are off-trail hiking into lesser-known areas of Monroe Lake. There is no set path and you are free to roam around. Keep in mind there are no toilet facilities. Registration is required by March 13th at bit.ly slash weh-mar15-2022. The hike begins at the Crooked Creek State Recreation Area on T.C. Steel Road. Take a full moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, March 18th from 9 to 10.30 p.m. Join Anthony at the Spring Mill Inn front patio for an adventurous hike on Trail 3, which is 2.5 miles long and quite rugged. You will learn why the March full moon is called the full warm moon. Enjoy a hike on Trail 5 at Brown County State Park on Saturday, March 19th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. and look for Indiana's seven native species of woodpeckers. The Woodpecker Wander Hike is 1.5 miles long and is considered quite rugged with creek crossings. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's news brief was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. Juliana Daly assembled the script, and Linda Green, Don Guerra, and Patrick Callanan 
edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.